This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, I'm so excited to bring on a writer I've only discovered relatively recently, but whom I've really quickly come to absolutely just love, and he's a must-read on everything. He writes an awesome newsletter for The Atlantic on... Uh, I suppose I'd say finding life lessons in popular culture. Uh, it's called Human Beings. But honestly, it may as well just be called Dear Ari because it's like basically custom made. <laughs> it's, it's honestly just custom made content for me. And he's also the author of an exceedingly moving uh, forthcoming book, an advanced copy of which I've had the privilege to read called Piccolo is Black. He's Jordan Calhoun. And we're going to talk about fandom and community. And just to set this thing up. So. We've been talking the last few weeks about the book of Exodus, which is generally awesome. And I think we've even managed to have fun with like the ostensibly boring parts, like building the tabernacle and so on. But probably the most challenging part of Exodus to get through, for those of you following along at home, is Exodus 30. And specifically the middle of that chapter, because that's where the Bible lays out the procedure for the Israelites taking a census. And I mean, this is the point of the Bible where it's like, oh my God, how could this possibly get any more boring? And then the Bible's like challenge accepted. I mean, come on, the census. But strangely enough, uh, in the tradition that I come from, where we read all the books of the Pentateuch through every year, we not only read this specific section of Exodus 30 once, like when we read through Exodus, we actually dedicate a special week every single year. And this year, it's actually going to be this week where we just read those verses like about the census. Why? Like, why is it so important? Now, as usual in the, you know, grand tradition of like biblical commentary and specifically Jewish biblical commentary, there are like a jillion different answers and there's so many good ones for sure. But one of the answers I've always loved has been this very simple observation that a commentator made like nearly 2000 years ago. And he pointed out that in biblical Hebrew, the word that means to count, nasa, can also mean to lift up. So why is something as mundane as a census so important to the Bible? Because when you decide to stand and be counted, that act lifts you up. There's something elevating, there's something ennobling about including yourself in account about being part of a community. Now, of course, if you'll remember from our episode with economist Leah Bustan, when the Israelites in the Bible actually carry out the census, often as not, they do it wrong. And when that happens, the Bible's pretty clear that it ends in disaster. Why? Well, because sometimes communities can be toxic. Uh, when they come together for the wrong thing. I mean, just think about every like toxic fandom you've ever encountered or heard of. It could be something as serious and awful as like the Aryan nation or whatever. Something as dumb and abusive as gamer culture. But either way, community done wrong can be bad. There are different gradations of bad, but it can be bad. But done well, man, there's really nothing like it. If you decide to count when you count yourself as part of something larger, that can lift us all up. But how do we do that? And... What does community look like in real life when you're actually in it, both the good and the bad? And is it possible we might be able to find it in some unlikely places? So to unpack all of this, I brought on a writer who's thought about this with just incredible depth and nuance. He's the proprietor of the Human Beings newsletter at The Atlantic. He's an author of the awesome forthcoming book, Piccolo is Black, which you can pre-order now. He's Jordan Calhoun. Jordan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for the generous introduction. I'm so happy to be here talking with you. Oh, my God. So I want to get into faith, all that stuff. But first, I want to talk about your book. So the premise of the book, which I'd love for you to expand upon, which kind of like 
struck me as so obvious once you read it, but I had literally never thought about it before, was that some characters, from the perspective of you, specifically you as a consumer, as a viewer, as an as a fan of pop culture, some characters are black without actually being black. Like Piccolo and Dragon Ball Z is the is where you get the title of the book from. Mm-hmm. And I really want to dig into the details because, as I said, I haven't been able to stop thinking about the implications since I read the book. But can you ex- can you expand on the idea? What is the, how did you come up with this, and what does this mean? One of my favorite things, something that I'm probably the most proud of in the book, whether everything between page one and page 255 is trash. The title is great. I am so (laughs) proud of the title because it really captures this, if you know, you know, sort of inside joke to black nerds in particular, where all black nerds or the majority of black nerds would look at Piccolo or look at some of the characters that I could describe in a second and say like, oh yeah, that's the black character in the show. Whether they're the token black character in the show or whether they're one of several black characters in the show, like Gargoyles, for example, or or Transformers Beast Wars, for example, we were able in our youth to recognize those characters who were coded as black, either intentionally or unintentionally. Some of them were intentional, some of them weren't. And The premise of the book is that there was so little diversity in pop culture and those stories that were helping us form our identities. There was so little diversity in that, that we had to make certain mental adaptations. People who didn't see themselves reflected in the cartoons or in the books or in the comic books or the things that we were consuming. And one of the ways that we did that almost sort of weirdly universally is finding those characters who to us, represented the Black experience, who were the Black characters. And there's different types of Black characters that I describe in the book, and I sort of do this through the lens of memoir in my life. One of those characters, like you mentioned, the book is named after is Piccolo. You know, there's Piccolo, there's Martian Manhunter from DC Comics, those characters who were brought from, you know, they were transported from another world and they were outcasts and they had this, like, pride in their culture, even though the rest of the larger culture wants them to assimilate. You know, there's that type of character. There are Black characters who are sort of like the token best friend or they're characters who, they're not white or they're not Black, but they're sort of ambiguous. Like I think of Doug, Disney's Doug, his best friend Skeeter. Skeeter's blue, right? He's not a Black character, (laughs) but everyone who can recognize the archetype of a Black character, they're like, oh yeah, Skeeter's the Black best friend. There's also anthropomorphic animals that they don't have any race at all that have something in their experience that seems familiar enough that Black kids were able to connect with them because there was so much negative representation of Black people in media or no representation at all that we could look at a dog like Max in a Goofy movie and say, oh yeah, Max is a Black character. He is now my avatar. He is now my hero, right? So it's really compelling and and sort of celebratory for me. I I hope, I mean, there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of dark stuff in the book, but I wanted one theme to shine through, which is the celebration of the adaptations that not just me, but that a lot of people were able to make to find themselves represented in things that made them feel good about themselves. You know, we could like filter out all the negative representations that existed in the 80s and 90s and, and earlier, to latch on to those things that made us feel proud to be who we were. So one of the things that I found just so mind-blowing about the premise was, first of all, it made me realize that 
we in the Jewish community do this all the time. And I'd never thought about it before. And by the way, especially in the Orthodox Jewish community, which is where I come from and where I still am, which is a totally different animal. And I want to get into that in a bit. But kind of like the insider term, like the insider insider term in the Orthodox community that we used to describe ourselves is from, which means like pious or devoted in Yiddish. And growing up, there were so many artists who were just totally from like Billy Joel is the best example. I actually learned a year ago that apparently his parents were Jewish. I had no idea, but he was raised Catholic. I don't think he associates with any particular religion or community, but Billy Joel is like the most from classic rock artist ever. Nirvana super from and hip hop Dre and Snoop are super from. And then later on Eminem becomes super from. I can't put my finger on exactly why, but one that struck out to me that, that stuck out to me that you mentioned in the book, because I kind of grew up with the same cartoon series that you did. Cause we were kind of in very different ways, but both raised in homes that took the Bible very seriously mm-hmm. was the stories from the Bible cartoons. And I can still hear. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it so much. I, I legit was, when I read that in your book, I was like, I don't care if I do anything else in this podcast. We're talking about <laughs> Hannah Barbera stories from the Bible. Um, oh. <laughs> oh man. I haven't been able to nerd out with anybody about this in like 30 years. So for those who, who don't know, it's kind of this like cartoon series that Hanna-Barbera produces. It's it's basically like stories from the Bible told from the perspective of three. I remember them as kids, but when I kind of went back and looked at it as I was reading your book, two of them are basically adults and one of them is a kid. They're like two archaeologists and then one goofball. It's like Margot's the smart one. Derek's like the goody two-shoes, yep. you know, upstanding citizen. And then there's Moki. And Moki's like... This young guy, his skin's a little darker than the other two. He wears a hat like he's always joking around. He's like the comic relief. And so in the book, you say like Moki was the only black character on the show. And so he was. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, my God. I always thought that he was the Jewish character on the show. (laughs) And like, I had to go back and watch it. And I'm honestly, even having watched it now, I'm still not sure what I think. (laughs) And it, it blew my mind. And and like what it prompted in me. And what I've been literally what I've been dying to talk to you about was so often, whether it's the Jewish community, the black community or any two other minority communities, I think a a trap that we always fall into is we only ever interact with each other through the prism of whatever kind of majoritarian pop culture is. And so that either means we're kind of joining together in a melting pot. And so we kind of lose our distinctiveness once we're there. That's kind of a dominant model. And and there are positives to it, I'm sure. Um, or the only other times we ever interact is if we're like reacting to some way in which we've offended each other. Right. So we're like reacting to a crisis because someone was racist or someone was anti-Semitic or someone was anti-Asian or someone was this. And I'd never before thought of these like liminal characters in pop culture as a way for us to bond, like, and as a way for us to actually come together in an affirmative kind of positive way. But have you considered those characters, like whether it's the Piccolos or the Martian Manhunters or the Sebastians or the Mokis, as it were, as kind of opportunities for alternative ways that our communities can talk to each other? That's all I think about. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's it's that feeling, that shared feeling of marginalization, right? Like you can look at a character like Moki and I would say Moki's a Black character. You would have the experience of like, oh, Moki's a Jewish character. But it's through those stories that we're able to talk about issues that we otherwise wouldn't be able to talk about. We'd be able to put them in a specific context where we can share a language of an experience through a character. And it really does help. I mean, it is it is such a profound way that humans 
understand each other through stories and that we're able to communicate and speak the same language through these stories. Like this type of conversation would be very difficult, if not impossible to have, if we weren't pointing to Moki. Yeah. Right. If we weren't pointing to someone that we could both say like, oh, I thought that person represented me. And oh, I thought that person represented me. And we can both say like, oh, you know what? I see. I never thought of Moki as Jewish. Never, never crossed my mind until 30 (laughs) seconds ago. Right. But I can now see that oh, this this could have been Ari's experience as well, even though he's not Black. Like, these characters and racial coding doesn't mean that these characters belong to a particular race or they are a particular race or they need to be a particular race. It's just our way of seeing ourselves and being able to have a type of self-worth that those characters can bring us or be able to feel that our experience is relatable to another person and to be able to talk with other people about those stories. Like, that's the power of it for me. So of all the characters that you talk about in the book, before you kind of were showing it to people, which one did you feel like, this is the hottest take, right? Like, this character being a black guy, like, this one's the hottest take. Huh, interesting, interesting. Okay, the hottest take. So maybe the most controversial one that would be coded as black. Oh man, I don't know if there are any that are, are that are super controversial. Let me think. Um, I'm just gonna audibly go through some of them in my head. So I would say Max from a Goofy movie, that's not controversial at all. Even though Jim Megan, like the person who wrote a Goofy movie did not intend on Max being black, but whether he was black or like intended that way or not, I, I'm, he's definitely black. And that chapter is amazing, by the way. Like, it's such a good <laughs> thank chapter. You. Thank you, thank you. Definitely black. I would say gargoyles, all the gargoyles. Like, they're all black to me. Like, once you cast Keith David as the voice of Goliath, they're, they're all black. I'm saying Mufasa's James Earl Jones. Like, Mufasa is an easy one. Like, there's so many that once you think about it, it becomes really clear, like, really obvious. I would say maybe, maybe two that come to mind that would be controversial. One would be Gaia from Captain Planet. She was originally voiced by Whoopi Goldberg, but then she was voiced by a white woman whose name I can't remember. Also, her her skin tone changed throughout the series. So she was darker earlier on, and then they lightened her. They changed her eye colors, or eye colors are different throughout. She sort of goes back and forth a little bit. So Gaia, Gaia is a questionable one. I want to claim her, but she's a questionable one. Um, I would also say Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler can be a questionable one. Nightcrawler's German. I was going to ask you about Nightcrawler, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nightcrawler's German. He's a, he, he falls into the category of... You don't have white skin and you're a good character? Eh, just come to our side. Yeah, you can count. <laughs> you have the experience of being an outcast based on how you look and who you are. Like, okay, that's enough of an experience since you go ahead and claim you as part of this in-group. But that's that's another one who I would say, like, yeah, that's probably debatable. But as a kid, I was like, most definitely, Nightcrawler's black. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about Nightcrawler because Nightcrawler was one for me where I always experienced him as Jewish, even though he is extremely explicitly not Jewish. Like, he's Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> he's super Catholic. And yet, I always found myself, like, you remember the arcades back in the day where you'd have, like, nowadays you go to arcades. Like, I go to arcades with my kids, and it's all, like, 
about getting tickets. Like, it was never about that when we were kids. It was all about, like, beating Tekken, right? Beating the game, yeah. Like, beating that X-Men game. That X-Men game, that's one. Like, <laughs> there was Ninja Turtles and there was X-Men. The amount of quarters we would spend on those. Oh, my God. There was a point in my life where I was like, if I make it big one day... I'm just going to beat this. I'm going to beat this game like 10 times a week. And it's so funny because I have talked to friends about this. We like from kids, like we would always choose Nightcrawler. And there was just something about it, even though he was totally Catholic and like a very proud Catholic. Right. (laughs) So I will say this. One thing that really resonated with me about how you present the idea of kind of finding pop culture figures to identify with, despite them not having any explicit particular identity with you is that in your book, it comes down to not feeling represented otherwise in pop culture. And that was something I felt like my community could learn from. I mean, like we've never been represented in pop culture. Like when Hollywood tries, it's so laughable. And honestly, most of the time, like there's so many Jewish characters in pop culture, but they just all usually, if they ever mention Orthodox Jews, it's to mock us, right? Like they're super clear, like, hey, we're not those Jews. Don't worry. We're like the safe Jews, right? But at the same time, I don't think I see this big ambition among Orthodox Jews to be represented. And I don't think it's something that we think about that much. And it certainly don't something, it's not something we resent. And as I was reading your book, I really began to think about this a lot and meditate on it. And I think that it's a shame. Like one thing I loved about your book was this confidence that, hey, we deserve to be represented, not because that's our due, but because we have some really important and beautiful things to teach people about who we are and what we stand for. So where did you find that confidence in your journey through pop culture and black identity? And how would you bring that out to other communities? It's probably through the conversations that I have with like-minded people. I mean, I have, you know, I'm sure, countless amazing, close, orthodox Jewish friends and family members who you think are spectacular. You know they have great stories to tell. They have great experiences. They have great insights to life. And part of being a nerd, and this is, I guess, sort of another part of the book that I can't remember if I talk about it explicitly or not, but part of being a nerd is seeing something and valuing it and appreciating it and loving it so much that you want to share it with other people. Like, that's the key to being a nerd is that you want to share it. In my opinion, like, gatekeeping is the opposite of being a nerd. Gatekeeping is trying to make your self-worth based on how you can control a community or control a property or control a thing. Being a nerd is wanting to share those things. So take that experience and basically applying it to answer your question about where the confidence comes from. It's Me knowing a great community of people, the way that I grew up, the people that were around me, the stories that were told, knowing how much wisdom and intelligence and humor and awesomeness is directly around me. On on one hand, it makes me just want to share it enthusiastically. And on the other hand, it makes me frustrated or flustered when you don't see it represented and you see this other picture represented on the screen. You see this other type of reflection sort of pointed at you. And as a kid, it's not something that I had the language for. It's not something that I probably thought about intellectually. You know, when we were growing up, we're not going to talk about it or think about it in the ways that we might think about it now. But I think if I can give like childhood us a little more credit than I think adults normally do, I think we knew enough that when we saw negative representations of ourselves, we just sort of ignored it or blocked it out or like we knew enough that like, oh, that that doesn't feel good. Right. So I'm going to go ahead and connect with this other character. Like if I see, you know, the crows in Dumbo being, you know, 
doing this certain portrayal of, of, of black people. Like, oh, I'm not, I don't care about that. I'm not going to pay attention to that. If I see the blackfish who sang during, you know, Under the Sea in The Little Mermaid, oh, I'm not. It's like you kind of go back and watch it on YouTube and you're like, whoa, that was on TV? Like, that was on video? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like, oh, man, this was this was out there. And the thing is, is like, those type of depictions, I don't remember them that well because as a kid, I don't think I missed them. I think that I was just like, ooh, that's, mm, nope, don't like that. Instead, I'm going to connect with this thing that I do like. And again, the confidence comes from knowing that there's awesomeness to be shared and wanting to share it and wanting the rest of the world, the rest of people who are watching these things to see that awesomeness that you see, to, to see it in some way the way that you see it. It's it's very gratifying. It's very validating to say that this thing is great. This story is great. This person is great. This idea is great. Don't you think so too? And to have that connection with someone based on that person or that story or that idea. So as I've gone through your writings, whether it's your book, your newsletter, reading your stuff before the newsletter, one thing that you've really opened my eyes to is the power of animation. And now once I read your book, you could see it's a constant in your life from the Transformers cartoon, which I want to come back to later, you know, the Goofy movie, comic books, and now some much more serious stuff, whether it's arcane or saga. What is it that attracts you in particular to that genre, like sort of animation, whether in the book on the page or on the screen? One of my grown up pet peeves, and I probably have mentioned this on The Atlantic, is when people dismiss something or they think that animation is for kids. You know, most of us grew up watching cartoons and then you get to a certain age where you start to think like, oh, animation is for kids. But animation is just a, a medium. It's it's not indicative of whether something has depth or is simplistic or not. And even even if it was, I would go as far as to say is some of the most simplistic stories can be the most powerful. That's not something that adults should, you know, rule out as being uh, unimpactful for them or unimportant for their lives. So I think a lot of my opinion on animation and the value of animation and so-called the heaviest air quotes, you know, lowbrow art, is that it's based on snobbery and snobbery. Yeah, snobbery. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like this snobbery and this elitism, this, you know, this sort of thinking that I am above this. I am so so intelligent that I am only going to watch these types of things that are on my level when when really there are great. I mean, you had mentioned Arcane. You know how much I love Arcane. It's absolutely great. Saga, a graphic novel series that just came back from hiatus. Absolutely great. There are a ton of stories that have just immense value for me individually and that I think has immense value for a lot of others, if only they give them the chance that people, you know, might thumb their nose at or might ignore because of the medium that they're in. And I think that that's a sad mistake. I, I always will think that that's a terrible mistake to ignore a story based on your assumptions of the media that it presents itself in. Stories are incredibly powerful to how we learn. They're incredibly powerful to the human experience. They're incredibly powerful for us developing our own empathy and our own worldview. I would not be whoever it is that I am today if not for the stories that I was consuming. And the same is true for you and everyone else. And to make a determination on whether a story is good or bad based on the medium it presents itself in, I think is just incredibly stupid. One thing I've thought about so much as I've 
read your work on animation is that the demerit that people typically ascribe to animation is that it's kind of like a lower degree of difficulty, right? So like, you could be lazy with it. And look, I love the Garfield comics, but like, you know, it's kind of like super easy to churn out like five jillion of those, right? Right. But what animation also allows you to do is portray weirdness in a way that realist art cannot do. Yeah. And by the way, like you could go to the Met or you go to the Louvre and you could see the exact same thing. So like, yes, the Renaissance painters, it's amazing. Super high degree of difficulty and the attention to detail. Like someone put this on Twitter the other day, like uh, Michelangelo's Moses is like lifting a pinky finger and there's a particular tendon in your arm that only shows if you're lifting your pinky and like he shows it. That's amazing. That's incredible. But there's something that Van Gogh captures, that Monet captures, that super realistic Renaissance painters aren't capturing. There's something Cezanne captures, something Picasso captures that those painters aren't doing because they're not tapping into how super weird and odd and crazy and nuts the world is. I realized as I was thinking about this, when I recommend like even something a little bit more mainstream in the animation sphere, like BoJack Horseman, when I recommend BoJack to like people I know, I have a much higher hit rate with specifically with Jews and specifically like Orthodox Jews than I do with others. And I think it has something to do with the weirdness. Like, I wonder if there's something about coming from communities like my community or your community where we just see the world in a much weirder way and we experience so much more weirdness, sometimes for the bad, but sometimes for the good. And I wonder if that's why kind of we're drawn to animation. Like, does that resonate at all? I wonder. I've never thought of it that way. I'd have to give that some more thought, like whether our experience in communities that others would perceive as extremely weird makes us more open to consuming those types of stories that are perceived as really weird. Like, I feel like I bought myself a part two interview. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) That is a really interesting thought. I mean, I'm just sort of thinking out loud right now. It, It would almost be like we are defensive of weirdness because that's always what we have been accused of being. Or we're just like more open to it. Like, I think weirdness is so cool. It always struck me as odd for people to say... Again, whether you're a religious person or not, to say that, like, religion has a a particularly high bar to clear in explaining the human experience always seemed like an odd argument to me because it's just another way of saying, like, if you want something weird, you have to do more explaining than if you want something non-weird. And I'm like, have you lived on Earth for five seconds? This place is super weird. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of, you know, you have this really interesting and intense a faith background that you grew up with. You grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist community and you grew up knowing the Bible super well. And one thing I wondered is the Bible is unique as an artifact in the ancient world. Certainly when you contrast it, I guess, with like the classical tradition and that it's a super heavy emphasis on story and narrative. Did that in some way prepare you to kind of approach things that I think are like genuinely great storytelling, like the Transformers cartoon, like from the mid 80s? Did that in any way kind of prepare you to think in a more serious way about the other great narratives that you found? Yeah, I think most of the stories that I was consuming, I would map on to the stories that were already familiar from the Bible. And in its simplest terms, it would boil down to a battle of good and evil. Like so many things early on in my childhood were you know, which side is the side of of God and which side is the side of the devil, because that was the story that I was the most familiar with. And as I would learn more about story structure and consume different types of stories, it would get more complicated than that. But a lot of my early experience, and I guess even to now, definitely to now, uh, this is sort of the foundation or the, the premise of my newsletter at The Atlantic is 
how do we take any story that I think that has value and map that onto the religious understanding or the ethics or morality that I was raised to believe? How can I learn ethics? And this is a lot of the premise of the book as well. It's like, what can I take from the belief system and the structure that I was given as a kid that I might not hold anymore? And what good can I take from those? And what good can I take from these stories that I absolutely love? Like, where's the overlap in that Venn diagram between the lessons and the structure that I learned from the Bible and the lessons and structures that I learned outside of the Bible? That's beautiful. And you've had a very different kind of faith journey than I have. So, for example, as I I don't want to put words in your mouth. So you've, as I understand it, you've kind of moved away from the religious community that you grew up with. But clearly, community is something you still think about a ton. And you write about it often. Where fandoms, different types of fandoms, good and bad, just the, the act of loving things collectively together. So I think kind of the stereotype is that, well, either you're like, religious and you're like have this sort of collectivist you know sensibility or you leave and it's just all about you and yet you kind of have this really sensitive and an extraordinary grasp about what communities can do wrong but also what they can do well how do you kind of navigate that as you think about your own journey I'll start by saying I hate that stereotype that you described. I completely agree that, you know, this this sort of stereotype exists that you are either, you know, this if you are in that faith structure, you are this deeply pious person who is a certain type of way. And those people who leave this faith structure are doing it for certain reasons, you know, for selfishness or to live a wicked life or to do whatever. And a lot of my motivation and a lot of my inspiration as a writer is to try to sort of prove that wrong. Uh, I'm saying this as a person who used to believe in that myth. I used to believe that there was no ethics or morality outside of the framework of the Bible and God. You know, that without the Bible, without God, how could one determine what was ultimately good or bad or righteous or unrighteous or moral or immoral? I thought that it didn't exist outside of the Bible. Now, I completely disagree with that, obviously. And a lot of what's challenging about ethics for someone like me who had that framework of religion and then lost that framework of religion is rebuilding it in a way that makes sense. (laughs) Like, ethics and morality is very, very difficult without that framework. That framework helped a lot. (laughs) Right. Nietzsche saw the death of God as a catastrophe for a reason. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very, very (laughs) tricky to rebuild a sense of morality if you had that foundation and then lost it. And to answer your question, part of where I try to find answers and part of where I think is the only place to find answers is through stories and talking through those stories with other people with the community, as you're as you're saying. So I feel like the types of things that I grapple with, whether in the book or in essays that I write, it's usually in some way, whether I intend to or not, I find that I always end up here one way or another, is some type of moral or ethical question that I'm grappling with that I am trying to understand for myself and I understand by writing it. And that I am hoping to engage with other people about so that they can tell me how they grapple with that entire thing or how they have it figured out. Like, I feel like our 
collective knowledge, you and I, Ari, having this conversation is going to come hopefully with more understanding and a, and a step, even if it's just an infinitesimal step closer to the truth, that is a, a step closer to the truth that I want to take or a step closer to a better understanding of what I personally think is right or wrong or good or bad or moral or immoral, right? So I feel like the community is what you have to rely on. And part of the ways that communities talk is through stories. I think it's the most effective way. I love that. So I want to end with something that may sound trivial, but it was like the most serious question in my life for a good, like, I'd say four or five years back when I was a kid. But like, okay, huge debate growing up that I really need you to weigh in on. <laughs> I'll try not to let you down. <laughs> I'm actually nervous to ask you this question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nervous to hear it now. I'm just like, oh, I don't know. Because I'm nervous you're going to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And if, I'm, and if I'm wrong, then we're going to debate. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to hear it. So... Was Tommy cooler as the Green Ranger or the White Ranger? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I haven't watched Power Rangers since I was a kid. I know. But I will say, I will say, I remember the day, the day that Tommy became the White Ranger. Uh, same, by the way. That stands out like the little so man. So, so, oh man. So based on sheer nostalgia, I'm going to say the White Ranger. But I would have to go back and watch it to see this with an adult point of view before I would feel confident in my answer. I'll say that much. I'm so glad to hear that humility at the end because I want to see if I can make the case for Tommy being cooler as the Green Ranger. Okay, so first of all, Evil Tommy is one of the great villains of all time. One of the great villains ever. And he was unstoppable. I mean, he was unstoppable. Yep. Jason was like the was like the baddest dude I'd ever like seen on screen. And Tommy just owns him. It's amazing. But even when he kind of flips back to the good side, there's this stage like right before he becomes the White Ranger where his powers are kind of like unreliable and he and he can't always summon them. And, and he ends up losing his powers because he kind of goes all in. I love the idea of like the hero that we all loved and like this guy who came in in late seasons, right? Like certainly not in the first season and became like the main protagonist of the show as being like unreliable. I thought that was so real. It was like the first example of like real storytelling where like the hero is not unstoppable. Right, right. Oh man. So two things I would say about that. One is, I don't know if you've gone back to rewatch the Power Rangers as an adult, but one of the joys of writing this book was that there were certain things that my memory was so foggy on, because, you know, I watched this stuff, you know, when I was a kid, that I would have to go back and rewatch it to see if it holds up. And it is an experience, Ari, let me tell I, you. like I had that recently with Captain Planet. Oh, man. Okay, so that would be a great one, too. Like, I haven't rewatched Captain Planet since I was a kid. My entire recollection of Captain Planet just lives you know, in memory. So, but I, I did go back and rewatch Gargoyles. I went back and watched Powerpuff Girls. I went back and watched Greatest Adventure Story from the Bible. Like I went back and watched certain things and like, it, you see it very, very differently with your grown-up brain than you did when you were a kid. I would love to go back and reevaluate the transformation from like from Green Ranger and White Ranger. Like I would, I would love to have a clear memory on that to actually have an opinion on it. So I'm so glad that you introduced that. Of the things that you went back and watched, which one held up the best? Gargoyles holds up so well. It's so good. I mean, flawless. There's there's so much just great about Gargoyles. So 
I guess this will tie back to what I was going to say earlier. You had mentioned the, the the complexity of storytelling that you normally didn't see at that age when you were talking about uh, the Green and the White Ranger and, and Tommy being evil for a while. And just those story plots didn't talk down to kids. That's what I enjoy most about them. Between Gargoyles and also the Transformers movie when Optimus Prime died. I mean, I guess spoiler alert for those who, you know, a couple decades late. But those are the stories that played to the top of our intelligence and the top of our maturity. And they challenged us. You had to grapple with like death. Right, exactly. And and they and they trusted you to handle it. And so you handled it. Like I I think I said that at some point in the book, like Gargoyles trusted me to handle this. And so I did. Like that's what I hear when you describe the complexity of storytelling in that Power Rangers arc is it challenged you. And on some level, even as a kid, you're like, oh, man, I respect it. Like, they're giving me some, something hard. They're giving me something that's, you know, a little different than, you know, the Blues Clues I was watching, right? So that is something that I love to see in media. And those are also the things that hold up the best because those are the things that speak to children, but also speak to above their head a little bit and ask them to reach. Those are the stories that are also pretty palatable, even as an adult. Like, it's still, you know, it's going to be easy for you to understand the themes in Gargoyles. It's not going to challenge you the same, but it's going to be a high enough level for you to be like, oh, I see what they did there. That's nice. That's good. Uh, I love that point so much. Anyway, the book coming out is called Piccolo is Black. You can pre-order it now. It is unbelievable. It's moving. It's extraordinary. It's fun. Everyone should pre-order it. And Jordan, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Whatever background you come from, whatever faith tradition you belong to, or whatever you believe, one thing I always take away from biblical literature is the importance of both story and community for grounding and enriching the human experience. And of course, as Jordan says, those two things are deeply intertwined. Communities need stories to bind them and give them purpose. And stories need communities to bring them to life. And in the case of the Bible stories, which are so deeply important to me, and I'm sure many of you, the best thing I can recommend, therefore, is to study them often and, just as important, study them together. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then go ahead, be awesome, head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a rating, five stars only, baby, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at soulshopstudios and underscore studios. And check out Soul Shop Studios.